1: You're listening to The Views Room, a Reuters podcast brought to you by the staff of Breaking Views. I'm Anthony Curry. Later in the programme, I'll be joined by my co-host, Jen Saber, to pick up the conversation about Paul Singer's latest target, AT&T. But first, we're handing over the controls to our colleagues in London who will hash out the latest turmoil at Nissan and the exit of boss Hiroto Saikawa.
2: So, Pete, um, why are we talking about Nissan this week? Why has it been in the news? Well, I mean,
3: we've all been following this kind of uh, tragic, uh, um, what would you call it, play that's been going on between Nissan and uh, its partner Renault um, and also uh, in the wings is is Fiat Chrysler. Um, Nissan itself has been having its own problems very much of its uh, that have been kind of led all the headlines, um, namely the the charging of Carlos Ghosn yeah. um, with alleged financial malfeasance. This created a bunch of, of disruption in the company. Yeah. He was uh, succeeded, as it were, by uh, this guy, Hiroto Saka- Saikawa, um, who's this uh, career Nissan guy. Um, he took a run at turning things around. He was supposed to be the kind of transition candidate. It's and been disastrous. So, well? No, it's gone really badly. Um, I think the last quarter, um, net income went down by like 95%. They had repeat, repeatedly like laid out negative forecasts and then missed even those. Yeah. Um, so, he's so he's just resigned. He's um, resigned, and he resigned under a cloud. Um, he himself, after all this uh, hubbub or hullabaloo over, over Ghosn and his lieutenants and financial mispropriety, he has admitted to accepting inappropriate compensation. Um, the board, uh, you know, accepted his resignation, apparently, and now they're going to be out headhunting. Um, so he
2: hung, he hung Carlos out to, to dry um, his old boss, and now he's being accused of similar, if less severe, kind of mal- mal- malfeasance. Well,
3: yeah, so they're hedging it, right? He hasn't actually been accused of misconduct. They just said that, like the, the, the report said that, you know, because it wasn't just him. Yeah. Um, it was a group of executives, and they all—they were all were like, "Oh, it's the gone era." Yeah. Um, because you know, a, a way the story goes is that they were—they received improper um, share yeah. compensation without being aware that right. it was—it was configured that way. But either way, he's gone, um, and now they have to—to to create a—you uh, know—they have the chance to go find somebody. Um, new and the question, and they also need to find somebody who's going to be able to navigate this kind of toxic environment, um, especially regarding the relationship with Renault and the French government. And I was going to ask you, you know, who you think you know would want this job um, and could, could pull this off.
2: I think no one in their right mind would think that this is anything but the hardest job in the car industry at the moment. Right? You're going to have to you have to tie together so many stakeholders if you're going to run this end. Right? You're going to have your biggest shareholder is Renault. This is the French car maker that has a 43% stake. Renault's biggest shareholder in terms of votes is the French government. So you're sort of, you're running this company that's indirectly influenced by the French government, which is famously unpredictable, as was evidenced quite recently when it essentially sank the planned merger of Renault with another European carmaker, Freya Chrysler. Um, so, I mean, yeah you, you would imagine that the new Nissan uh, CEO's first job will be to sort out the underperformance of the company right. but navigating this kind of long term
3: well it's a question of priority right because to, to Renault's view and, and certainly you know um, uh, to the French government like some of the officials have come out and said well you know the merger itself will fix things we'll get synergies yeah um, you know and then we'll we'll merge with FCA and we have more synergies and you know the the Japanese uh, you know, Nissan owns fifty percent Renault. Granted, it's not voting stake, but like they on paper would benefit from this. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is kind of the mirror political problems that both of these people have. So, both of these companies, to say, I mean, like so. Renault has the French government but like behind Nissan right. you know is, is to a certain extent all the kind of the, the Japanese industrial policy people at Medi yeah. um, and also these nationalist guys who are like we don't want the French coming in here or any foreigners yeah. coming in here and telling us what to do with a Japanese car which is, which
2: car is understandable right you can imagine fair enough other way well around. because
3: Ghosn wasn't really delivering I mean he saved Nissan from bankruptcy yeah. no question but like in recent years he has very much been coasting on that reputation because like a lot of people think that like the problems that Nissan has in terms of the operations in the United States um, where it had this, this kind of disastrous subsidy program run by a uh, GONE Lieutenant, uh, Jose Munoz. Um, he subsequently left the company. He subsequently left, bounced out. Um, and then you also had a, a, you know, a problems in Japan with quality control, which they also blamed on GONE. Granted, you can blame everything on Gone when he's in dock awaiting trial. Um, but still, I mean, to your point, like, it's gonna be really difficult to find somebody who pleases not just the two business sides. <laughs> Which yeah. I think would actually be a lot easier. Yeah. You know, but somebody who can who can make because you know behind Renault, you know, is Macron and and, and yep. Bruno Le Maire and and lobbying them or like the French unions. Yeah. You know, and arguably they played a huge role. Yeah. yeah. You know, in screwing they, up they the were, FCA thing.
2: Yeah. There were very obstinate voices on the on the Renault board um, against the FCA merger.
3: But do you buy I mean so Le Maire made it sound as if like this is the the Japanese and Saikawa being difficult, right? And like Saikawa got back he, he got to hold on. He was never expected to stick around that long, right? No. But he got to stay in this seat. Yeah. Um, you know, because he gave Renault these these seats on key committees, the nominating committee and the audit committee. The nominating committee will now be searching for his replacement. Yeah. But like the whole one of the one of the lines of argument I've seen out there at least was that you know the Japanese were like, ah, oh, we don't want the merger.
2: I think I think that line of argument is is massively overinflated. I think there's there's an element of reservation from the Japanese side. This is just from speaking to various banks on different sides of the deal, which is essentially you know, they were a little bit peeved at suddenly having this plan presented to them and not having been involved um, in the first place. Um, And they didn't feel like they understood the plan as well as they wanted to. So therefore, they were going to abstain on the Renault board. There's two Nissan Directors on the Renault board. That's not voting against it. Yeah. And a lot of the public signals you saw from Cycle, as you said, is like, well, we're going to get some synergies from this. We're going to be part of a bigger, more powerful global group. What Arguably is Renault like? was
3: going to be diluted a little bit, like exactly. the French government was going to be a smaller role. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like, you know, like it has not been like a rational thing in a lot of places because no. different people have different agendas. Yeah. So
2: But I think the bigger issue with that fear thing was essentially the French government wasn't ready to, you know, press the button um, on basically becoming a smaller shareholder than the guy who controls Fiat, who is this guy called John Elkan, who's the right. Agnelli family scion. Yet another extremely complicated, strong-willed stakeholder here that we haven't <laughs> even mentioned yet. Um, I mean, what, just just to tie this up, what is your prediction of what's going to happen next? I'll, t- I'll tell you mine if that, if that helps, and you can tell me if you disagree, which is that we will, we're now almost back to stage one of, of Renault-Nissan, where... A lot of the same problems that we've always had are in place where you've got a a French side that favours more integration. You've got a slightly intransigent Japanese side. Mm -hmm. Um, The unequal uh, shareholdings are going to be a problem. And there's going to be talks about trying to resolve that, but it will not move very quickly. Fiat will try and maybe make the merger happen again. Um, But I'm I'm basically anticipating not very much for, for, for the rest of the year.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, it's going to take a while and I mean, certainly with the, the car market, the global market going the way it is, the fires are only getting getting worse on just the basic operational level. And I think that both of these companies, I mean, you know, I, I'm not on the factory floor, but there have been reports and, and people telling me that, well, actually operational cooperation has, has been degraded, yeah. you know, and so that's kind of increasing internal transaction costs, things are going more slowly yeah. um, and they have serious business problems. But we'll find out, I mean, one of the indicators will be how quickly they get to, to select a new guy, yeah. assuming it's a guy or, or woman, a new leader. Um, you know, And they have set a very aggressive target for this, like by the end of October, which is to find somebody who so really wants to jump in to this hot mess and start sorting it out. Um, that said, there are some candidates and it'll tell us a lot who they go with. I mean, for yeah. one thing, there's Jun Secki. Um He's, uh, you know, Nissan, you, Lifer. N- 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 Nissan Lifer, but he has worked with Renault. Um, you know, he, he's worked in the U.S. Yeah. Um, he worked in the China market with the joint venture partner, which is very, very, very important relationship to have. Um, you know, but he is the Nissan Lifer. He's got a warmer reputation than Saikawa. Right. But like that guy might be more pleasing to you know the Japanese guys, and it might be seen in Paris as like, oh, here's, here's one of these, you know, intransigent, you know, Japanese yeah, factions yeah. that just want to turn it into a Japanese company and, and get us out of our stake. Alternatively, the other big name, uh, Carlos Tavares,
2: right,
3: who also has a history with these companies. Yeah, um, he used
2: to work under Carlos Ghosn at Renault. He
3: did, he did, he did. But I, I mean, he's got kind of a different reputation. He's not the yeah. guy with the. Weddings in Versailles, or whatever. <laughs> no, <laughs> He's got a reputation it, yeah. of a bit more down to earth. Yeah. Um. You know, this the question is, the is how, how, up, how, how yeah. will the Japanese take to him? But either way, they really need to get somebody quickly, and they need to get somebody good. And uh, I'm I'm, the nominating committee has its work cut out for it. Most definitely.
2: Sounds like a good note to end on. Thanks very much, Pete.
1: Thanks, Liam. So is Paul Singer going soft? That's the question I've got from this news this week. That that his hedge fund, his activist shareholder hedge fund, Elliott Management, has sent what looks like a a relatively polite letter to AT&T directors saying, let's do a little bit better, please, guys. Um, With me, I've got Tom Berkeley, who's writing about this from the point of view of Elliott. Uh, And looking at this from the company's point of view, AT&T is my co-host, Jen Saber. Welcome to both of you. Hi. Hello. So, Jen, let's start with you. Um, What's the biggest problem AT&T's got that Elliott seems to be ignoring?
4: Well, I think the biggest issue here has to do with the boss of AT and T, which is Chief Executive and Chairman Randall Stevenson. So, what's really interesting about this letter is that they tick through all sorts of problems and issues that have been going on uh, at AT and T for the past, you know, decade, more than a decade, right? right? And it aligns perfectly with when uh, Randall Stevenson was appointed into the c-suite so but what's also interesting is they don't really talk about randall stevenson um and so it's sort of like okay you have all these issues and problems which we can tick through in a minute but the person who sort of orchestrated everything is just not really in this Why is it tom-
1: like I was saying at the beginning, I mean, Elliot is renowned for going after people. I mean, they they, they took a an Argentine ship hostage as part of their debt uh, their debt talks or lack of talks a few years ago, and they went after conic head as well, Klaus Kleinfeld, yeah. and and won. What's the deal here? Why are they being so soft?
5: Well, I'm not sure it's soft. I think they're being quite cagey. First of all. AT&T is a much bigger fish than they've gone after. And it's one of the most widely held stocks in America. It's a lot of retail holders. So the idea of Big Bad Hedge Fund going after an you know, iconic American company, if you overplay that, that could, right. that, could uh, that could boomerang. Um, but, you know, they've done – they do enormous amounts of research. They have incredible resources. I mean, they, they go at length to talk about how many former executives and – and customers and other people that they've researched before right. reaching out to the company. And, no, they don't mention Randall Stevenson directly, but there's a footnote. And the footnote is to the share price performance where they say how badly the stock has performed, right. and it has. And, of course, the footnote is this dates from the day when Randall Stevenson took over as CEO. Well, they just say since this, the current CEO started. So, I mean, yes, it's it's somewhat veiled, but I, I don't think there's any, you know – any doubt about what their real target is.
1: So it seems like that they're, they're almost trying to get the directors on side rather than saying, Look, let's get rid of someone. Let's just make it very obvious that you know the, the one person we're not talking about and we're alluding to is the problem here. But see what you can do first.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think that's uh, part of what's, what's happening here is that they are going the kind of Soft touch approach, and why not? Why not try that? Because you can always ramp things up, Mm. right? So why come out swinging um, when at first maybe you have receptive ears somewhere, either on the board or in the company? Um, And so this gives uh, the board or management an opportunity to sit back and think it through and say, okay, well here's how we're going to meet you on on some of these points. Now, I mean. You know what Elliot recommends is sort of squishy, and AT and T is already kind of doing it. Um, one is uh, they focus on Direct TV, which was uh, about a sixty billion dollar acquisition all in, right. um, which was made in twenty fifteen. Which it, pay TV satellites, which is just completely dying. Mm. Like it was dying when AT and T bought it, and it has been a big trouble spot for the company. Right. Then they go off and uh, buy Time Warner, which in and of itself isn't bad, but you have to kind of wonder, okay, this is a telephone company and they're buying a media company. Are they going to be able to execute the changes that they kind of hope right. to make?
1: And it's too, Those are two big deals in a relatively short space of time. This course right. comes after. Stevenson went after and failed to win T-Mobile USA.
4: Which is, I think, perhaps the most colossal mistake he made, which is he went after T-Mobile in around 2011. The Department of Justice, which at the time it was under the Obama administration, was like, no way, you cannot, uh, we're not going to prove this Mm -hmm. deal. And T-Mobile walks away with this incredible break fee of six billion dollars of spectrum and cash and you know basically built themselves up got into um started a price war it made life miserable for all the telecom carriers including at&t so it was and now they're off to to buy sprint to be an even stronger uh third 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 nice work
1: randall so yeah um, so here we're talking strategy let's put this in in terms of numbers so when we look at AT and how bad it's done, well, what's Elliot looking at? I mean, how bad has it actually performed?
4: Well, it's hard to argue with what Elliot is stating here. Um, so, first of all, let's look at the share price, which Tom alluded to. Um, it's. Basically been flat since Randall Stevenson uh, took took the helm. And
1: that's, how long ago was that? that was... Uh, in two
4: thousand and seven. Right. You compare that to Verizon, which over the same time period is up a seventy percent, and you know that yeah. is that's telling right there. Yeah. Um, they're in a massive amount of debt. And that is a real problem for AT&T because they went off buying all these companies where they're not quite executing yet mm-hmm. on their promises. And they're left holding, um, you know, a, a big check that they have to pay to, to to write off their debt in addition to keeping up a dividend and making sure that they increase that dividend.
1: Right, so That's pretty messy. So what's, what's AT&T doing about it at the moment? And, and can they do more, according to Elliott?
4: They are doing some of what Elliott is suggesting, which is selling off some assets. They sold Hulu, uh, their stake in Hulu, for example. And some other things that they're looking at. Um, You know, they have made a commitment to pay down their debt, but, you know, it's a matter of how quickly can they do that. Um, So all those things are kind of in the works. I mean, you know, what do you do with direct TV? Do you spin that out? I mean, I don't know. Who cares? Mm. You're going to get rid of like, you know, this this thing that's dying. Do you sell it? Who's going to buy it? I mean, again, this is satellite TV. So there are a lot of issues where you're kind of like, what do you do? And I think what it comes down to is the execution, right? So. So that kind of leads us back to Randall Stevenson.
1: I mean, uh, is its current performance? So forget about share price, but whether it's on on margins or earning earnings or return on capital, whatever, is it markedly worse than its its peers at the moment?
4: Well, it depends on what time frame you look at. Right. But yes, it's markedly worse in okay. the market. It's markedly worse than peers like Verizon, which is their direct peer. Which more or less is stuck to the, their knitting. They, yeah. they're, they're about phones and networks, which yeah. is kind of what Elliot is saying. Like yeah. AT&T needs to, to concentrate on that. So
1: why, why is no one going after Stevenson before?
4: Um, that's a good question. I do not know. And it's probably, going back to Tom's point, the size of the company. It's mm. about $270 billion. Yeah. Um They have a lot of retail investors. Um, more so than most other companies, so that makes it very difficult. Um, and so, if Elliot decides to go hostile, it's going to be expensive. Mm.
1: So, Thomas, turn to you then. So, I mean, the, the size of the company sounds important, but as, as I recall, um, we've seen activists go after big companies. P and G was the big one, Procter and Gamble, a couple of years ago.
5: P and G is bigger. Uh, Nelson Peltz took him on. Uh, was a very. It was a, both a. Very sort of mean-spirited and very costly. I think there are reports out there that it probably cost on the order of one hundred thirty million dollars. Is a number you hear tossed. This is over
1: just a board seat, right?
5: This is over a board seat. So it
1: wasn't even about strategy, and it was just well, put me on the board. He did. But he did, it came. He, it, it, boiled, it boiled down to put me on the board.
5: Yes, and he did make some strategic suggestions, some of which P and G is, is undertaking. And they actually did. They had this long, nasty fight. It took the better part of two months to actually tabulate the votes, and there were. Counseling back and forth. Uh, apparently, if you believe the final numbers, P&G slightly won. Right. But by that point, the, the PR had been so bad, they decided yeah. we better bring this guy on board. And since yeah. then, actually, the stock has done phenomenally well over the past yeah. 12 months.
1: Uh, so one of the issues, there, as I recall, was that um, there was a big um, battle to win the votes of the passive funds, which owned, what, 20% to 30% of the stock. Exactly. Um, they're not as big in AT&T, it seems. They're about 12 to 15%. Of the stock, so not small, but not the big all-weighing factor that it seemed to have been at P&G.
5: No, but if you can do that on four phone calls, as opposed yes. to getting an army of people going after, uh, you know, mom and pop investors, um, that's that's a pretty a pretty decent sized block. But it also uh, trickles
1: down, like when you get down below this big three or four, it trickles down to two percent, one percent, less oh, than a very quickly. Yeah. There's
5: a lot. There's a lot of active managers, and I would expect that sort of the. Uh, the more uh, liquid end of the market, say, hedge funds would get active in here as, as this develops. I mean, think about the pace of this. Uh, you, can't, you, know, just, you don't just go out there in day one and say, uh, Stevenson's got to go. It, it's, it's a big entrenched company. You've got to lay the groundwork, which they've started to do. Mm-hmm. They have a, a lot of actual operational suggestions in there. Uh, a little thin on the what to do going forward as opposed to the let's not make the kind of bad mistakes we did in the right. past. But, you know, that's kind of par for the course. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you'll, you'll see if you get cooperation from the board, if there's some dialogue there, and, you know, maybe they actually do something about the CEO. Um, but it, the, sort of the backstop for for Elliot it seems to me that the script is pretty well there. You know, it's now September. If you're going to look about a proxy campaign, you've got to really get that geared up by by January or right. February. So you've got a few months here to see if uh, AT&T is going to engage and try to take on board some of these suggestions and maybe even give them a seat.
1: Oh, yeah, the seriousness of what they're doing is, is, is not to be underestimated, right? This is its, its biggest ever investment. It's 3.2 billion, which is almost 10% of the, f- of the fund. Is that right?
5: It is. They manage a little under $40 billion. You know, like a lot of investors, they've got to figure out, uh, you know, it's, it's a low-yield environment. Where do you actually put money to work? you got to write big checks for a firm that size to actually move the needle. So you know this is is one way to do it, and of course the stock's popped already. So it suggests maybe they've got they've chosen a good target.
1: So does this show um, Elliott Management maturing a little bit? And I don't mean that pejorative. I mean you know they they, they used to be seen as the you know, the, 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 the rambunctious new uh, arrival a few years ago on the activist scene, and they went they used to do what they were doing what um, I suppose Nelson Peltz and others were doing in the eighties and nineties, really just going hell for leather for it and this seems to be rather more a studied approach that sort of takes into account more factors than maybe they would have done in the past. Um, I th- they've always they never skimped
5: on the research so I don't I don't think that's changed so that much but they have made a conscious effort and actually beefed up their teams of people who actually go out and engage with companies and try to sell them on their arguments and you know avoid the fight because if you look at the example of Arconic which is probably one of the more recent campaigns that's similar to this um, they started out on a cooperative basis. The, the CEO didn't want to; would resisted all the mm-hmm. uh, suggestions for change. They had this whole big knockdown, dragout fight in public. It was allegations of blackmail and all this other stuff. It detracted the company, of, you know, for months and months and months at a time of you know real difficulty in the industry. Uh, that, that's been that, that's in, not in Elliott's interest or or the company's right. interest. So um, you know, I think they're giving a decent amount of time here to see if they can do something constructive, but. I, I would not be surprised. I don't think they'll walk away from this. I mm. think if there's if there isn't any kind of a cooperation, um, I, Jen used that great analogy about a velvet coated a velvet coated fist. Uh, I have no doubt that there is a fist in there somewhere. If uh, if it needs to come into play, yeah, that's
1: right, I mean, Jen, that's how, how you phrased it in your in your piece earlier this week. So l- last point to you, then, Jen, or should I say last question to you? Um, let's go forward a few months. What do you think's happened by, say, May next year? Do you think Stevenson's is there? And do you think Elliott's done a, a managed to force him out?
4: Well, um, I, I will hedge this a little bit. I think they'll probably get a board seat. And I think at the very least, maybe the board will consider splitting the role right now chairman of and chairman CEO. and ceo right. which is you know it's good corporate governance to do that anyway yeah. but so, that's,
1: that's often also seen as a sort of punishment for poor performance uh, for those who have both roles so you you sure. keep them but you you give them a little bit of a slap
4: yeah um so i could possibly see that happening
1: all right thanks folks for coming on and, and discussing that i'm sure we'll be back to see what elliot does next both at t and elsewhere i'll
5: keep MSP down <laughs>
4: That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Pete Sweeney, Liam Proud, and Tom Berkley. Hats off to our producers, Ross Shoulder and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Download the Views Room wherever you listen to things. And don't forget
0: to (laughs) tune in next week for another edition. (laughs)